are you in a process right now of looking to change what it is that you're doing? Are you satiated? Or is everything happy? Do you have the, the, the magic sweet spot of life? From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Or are you struggling to you know, get out of repeating a lot of the same patterns that many of us do throughout our lives, albeit with different stories attached to them or different circumstances or different players in the game? ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little waves of audio we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. And so if you've got that level of, of sort of frustration where you think, you know something, I know there's more to life than this. I know there's a better way than this, and it's just not quite working for me. Maybe it's no longer time to try to uh, change your circumstances, which is what many people focus on. Maybe it's time to reinvent who you are, because everything starts there. If necessity is the mother of invention, then what, pray tell, might be the mother of reinvention? We all get a little tired of the selves we see in the mirror, be it our face or our soul, and at some point or another, we yearn for newness, crave something better, would sell our soul for a little excitement. Sometimes a new you can be as simple as a new do. Other times, you kind of have to rip up the floorboards of your interior life to move forward. You think you're so cool. You think you're so much better than everyone around here. Today on ReSound, redefinition and reflection. Stay with us. Nothing makes you take a critical look at yourself more than entering the dating pool. And if it's been a while and you're out of practice with the whole, will they like me, cesspool of swirling self-doubt, well, as Sophie Townsend knows all too well, re-entry can be rough. But, you know, welcome back. It was my fault. I was wrong. I didn't realize how special you were. You did nothing wrong. You're perfect. Always get a voiceover actor to play your ex. Okay. Uh, Always. <clears throat> because it's the only way you get them to say what you want. You're perfect. I don't know why we broke up because I don't quite know why we got together. Except, well, except that I bullied him into it. It had been a year and a half since my husband died when a man in a bar looked at my feet, looked at my face and smiled. I love your shoes. That was all it took in that little bar, warm and full of music and cigarette smoke. He said hello and he told me he liked my shoes. It's true. I really liked those shoes. Black, but purply black, almost liquid, like an endless pool at the bottom of your legs. He was the drummer in the band playing that night. They'd covered wild horses. I wanted him. I wanted him to love me and I wanted to love him. And I wanted it all that very second. Like an endless pool at the bottom of your legs. Up until that moment, I hadn't felt hungry for anyone new. I was a widow now, sleeping alone for the first time in 15 years, just trying to get the bills paid and the house clean and the kids brought up. 
romance seemed like just another chore I didn't have room for on my to-do list. I could almost see my reflection in those shoes. But when he smiled at me, it seemed that I could let go of being the widow with the imaginary black shawl over my shoulders and that cold wind I swear I could feel swirling around me. I could let all that go because the truth is that even though I was lonely, I didn't miss my husband. Not really. I missed the idea of him. I missed having someone around who took out the trash, who shared the cooking, the bills, who balanced out the right side of the bed. Someone who once in a while told me they liked my hair or that I looked nice in a coat or a scarf or a new pair of shoes. But I didn't miss him. I just felt a hole where he had once been. So when I looked down into my shoes that night and saw this new man smiling back at me, it seemed to me that I had the chance to fill that emptiness. Do you, do you want me to do what's in the script or do you, what did you like? With a seamlessness and a cold-hearted haste. More emotion. I offered him my husband's role. Like this? As though he were an understudy, stepping in for the leading man. I love your shoes. He came over one night when my kids were away and he stayed and that was that. He sent me flowers, he did the washing up after dinner, he made me an omelette and it felt pretty good. I didn't have to sit alone on my couch anymore. He could sit next to me. But then he'd go into his studio and play his drums and forget to call. He'd turn up stone to dinner at my mother's. He popped pills to get to sleep or to relax or expand his mind. He'd turn up the music too loud and tell me his boring stories about drumming and making it big. And yet, for not one single minute did it occur to me that this thing between us should end. Because even if the understudy's not quite right, the understudy's there. He's alive, right in front of you. And the show must go on, right? I'm having trouble with this line. I just can't get the rhythm of it. What about I say something more like, nice shoes, they'd look really good at the foot of my bed. I told him I loved him, and he half smiled and half winced, and then he left. And I fell apart. The whole thing had only lasted six weeks. I wrote him nasty emails. I wrote that he was selfish, stupid, no good in bed. He was useless, boring, talentless. I never liked him anyway. Those emails weren't fair. He hadn't ever signed up for the role I'd forced him to play. And he didn't know how broken I was because I didn't know how broken I was. But I was broken. And at the time it felt like I'd been broken by this stranger leaving me. This stranger who'd liked some shoes of mine. But really, I'd been broken before that, by watching my husband die. And it took a while. But I finally realised that even though he could deliver all the right lines... I'll take this trash out for you. I like your hair. This guy... I love your shoes. ...didn't sound anything like my husband... And suddenly, 
I didn't just miss the comfort of marriage. I missed the man I loved. Not the idea, but the man. The man who didn't just help with the cooking, but who made a spinach and cheese pasta, even though he didn't like spinach. The man who kept quoting lines from The Godfather as I struggled in labour with our first child. The man who rubbed my bare feet after a long day in shoes. That man. That man who was never coming back. Russell. I didn't know just how badly I was trying not to miss him until his understudy broke my heart. But I did. I do. I miss him. And I lie in bed alone now and I'm pretty much used to it. And I pay the bills, mostly on time. I hate taking out the trash, but I do it. And sometimes I get lonely, but I don't mind it so much because... because it's real. And it reminds me of what I had. That was The Understudy by Sophie Townsend. It originally aired on the show Love Me from the CBC. To hear the prequel to this story called The Updates, an unflinching audio journal of her husband's diagnosis and treatment, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. The desire for a new you can be triggered by the smallest thing, boredom, the mirror, or simply a nagging feeling. Those are some of the inner catalysts, but outer catalysts can drive the biggest changes, forces that drive us, whether we like it or not, to re-examine who we are. Like Katie Crouch, for instance. She happened upon someone who was strikingly familiar in many, many ways, and that made her stop to re-examine her own life. Here is Nancy Lopez with Katie's story. So this is a story about Katie Crouch. I liked my name growing up. I liked the name Katie. Katie Crouch was my grandmother's name, so that was the first other Katie Crouch that I knew. So soon after college, I think I was Googling my name, and I came across Katie Crouch, who had graduated from college the same year I did, and she was my same age, and so I just remember making a mental note that another Katie Crouch existed out there. And then a couple years later, Katie went to a friend's wedding in Miami. And this guy came up to me that I had never met, had a big smile on his face, and he said, excuse me, are you Katie Crouch? And I said, yes. And he said, I know the other Katie Crouch. And as it turned out, the other Katie Crouch also had red hair, also worked in publishing, and at the time, also happened to live in San Francisco. So it kind of brought her into reality even more. Like, is this really my doppelganger? What, you know, are we destined to meet? So when I got back to San Francisco, I emailed her. I wrote something like, how crazy, we both live in San Francisco and have the same name. Let's meet up. And there was no response. Katie eventually moved to New York City, looking for a change of scenery, 
And almost immediately, she started receiving online friend requests from people looking for the other Katie Crouch, who was now also living in New York City. For Katie, the coincidences just kept stacking up. So she decided to email the other Katie again, suggesting they meet up. And she got it. And I know that because she responded, neat, take care. Her response really shut me down. I was disappointed. I thought, well, maybe it ends there. I moved back to San Francisco and I'd be at different establishments like Kabuki Spring Spa or REI or different places where they say, oh, Katie Crouch on Upper Terrace. And I would say no. And I realized that's her. She's back. She lives in San Francisco again. I can't believe it. I gave it one more shot. So I sent her an email. I think it was brief. Hey, you know, you live up the hill from me. We should meet sometime for coffee. We're both back in San Francisco. And she never responded. It sounds like such a sad story from my perspective. I just kept reaching out like, this can't be. You have to be more open to this. But clearly, and for whatever reason, the other Katie Crouch wasn't open to this. So Katie resolved to move on and leave the other Katie Crouch behind her. Although that proved to be kind of impossible. I received an email from Katie's mom with a link to vacation photos on Walgreens.com. I went to Walgreens.com and created an account so that I could look at the photos. Photos of Katie and her family by the lake. And I saw that she had just had a baby girl. I realized that this was not a window into her life that she had granted me by any means. But I, it made me feel good to see her happy with her baby girl by the lake. And I responded to her mom and said, you got the wrong Katie, you must have the email wrong. I think I knew at that point there would be no way to shut it off because the emails and the phone calls and the crossed wires just kept coming. And then came the book. In 2008, the other Katie Crouch published her debut novel, Girls and Trucks. It got raving reviews and secured a spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And I immediately started receiving congratulations and accolades. Someone actually sent me a clipping of the review and said, congratulations, when did you find the time? I saw it on the shelves in tons of places, and so did friends of mine who would take a picture of it on the shelf and text it to me and say, here's your book. I was a creative writing major. I wrote fiction and poetry in college, and I work as an editor in, in publishing. So just the fact that I had not yet published novel was, was kind of rubbing it in my face a little bit that she was out there and she was quite successful with it. From that point on, Katie's online existence was pretty much usurped by the other Katie Crouch. Google the name and you get links to Katie Crouch, best-selling author. Katie Crouch, Girls and Trucks. So this Katie's one solace. She got to Twitter first. I do have the Katie Crouch handle on Twitter. She had to be Katie A. And that felt good just to claim a little piece of the online world for myself. I think at that point, my attitude was just to be a good name neighbor and forward messages along that were misdirected. But I stopped trying to be too friendly about it. 
because I felt like for whatever reason, she really didn't want to know me. Two years ago, Katie got a text from a good friend. OMG, Katie, she's writing about you and sent the link. So obviously I clicked the link and was quite amazed to see what she had written. The other Katie Crouch had just published an essay on Aussie.com, an online magazine. The title was The Other Me. It was about me. Obviously, my first impulse was to make sure that I came out looking okay. Like, is she going to make me sound like a jerk? So I read it really fast, and then I read it more slowly. The essay is quick and punchy. In just under 800 words, the other Katie lists a series of misencounters, like going to the video store and learning Katie had rented DVDs on her account, and the time Katie took two of her prepaid yoga classes. And then she met someone who happened to know Katie and had great things to say about her. She didn't make me look bad. She made me look great. She made me sound friendly and open. But instead of feeling compelled to meet this Katie because of all they shared in common. One of the last lines of her essay is, it's not you, I just don't want to know. Why, what is she doing writing about it? If you really wanted to pretend that I don't exist, maybe don't write an essay about me in a magazine that has thousands of readers. I knew the minute I finished reading it that I was going to write uh, a rebuttal. I got an email saying the other Katie Crouch's essay is up and you should read it. It's funny. This is the other Katie Crouch who published the first essay and, to my surprise, was very willing to talk about it. I remember going to Ozzy.com, and I had sweaty palms, and my my heart was beating. I was nervous because it was going to be someone else talking about me, you know. And I clicked on it, and it was, you know, very disarming. Katie's essay was a lot more candid and forthcoming. She talks about her desire to meet her doppelganger, She talks about the rejected emails and also the impact of Katie Crouch's novel. But it's the end of her essay that really struck this Katie Crouch the most. I felt a little like I had my hackles up because that last line. Which reads, A few years ago, she became a mom. Last year, I did too. I thought I saw her sitting outside a cafe downtown last week, staring into her smartphone. We'd have so much to talk about. The forces of the universe insist that we're two sides of the same coin, but I want a better ending. The writer and her should, too. It's such a taunt. (laughs) It's such a taunt. (laughs) She definitely put me in my place. Yeah, I felt a little bit chastised. Um, I I did reach out. I was sitting at work, and my phone popped up with a notification and said, Katie Crouch wants to be friends on Facebook, which, as you can imagine, is kind of a trip when your name is Katie Crouch. It's, like, confusing what's happening. And I realized it was her. And this is shocking, because being friends on Facebook is pretty much the opposite of ignoring someone. Facebook is sort of the perfect non-reach-out reach-out. It's, like, so easy. You just click a button say, hey, and then I kind of covered my bases that way, I felt. You know, I, I Facebook messaged her saying, you know, thanks for writing the essay. It was, it was a great essay. Did she respond to your message? Yeah, in an equally, you know, cool way, in a um, diplomatic. Non- diplomatic, non-personal way. You're, you know, I loved your essay too. 
Yeah, I responded briefly because by now I'm feeling kind of burned. I accepted her friend request. I was like, let's just get used to that and then see what happens next. But as the months passed by, there would be no other direct messages or posts between the two Katies. It seemed like this was it. Two dueling essays for the record and the status of Facebook friends. But really, after all these years living somewhat parallel lives, this is how their story is going to end? Are we, we're recording? We are recording. Great. So, um, Katie, I'm going to hand you over to Katie. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Katie. Hi, Katie. It's Katie. It's Katie Crouch. Hi. It's Katie Crouch. <laughs> so I knew arranging this phone call was going to be risky. Like, where is this conversation going to go? Which does lead to some early awkward moments. <laughs> I'm feeling strangely nervous. I'm not even strange. I'm just feeling nervous. I'm Very totally cool. nervous. <laughs> this is a big moment. Um, wow. So, uh, where, so do, where I do we start? It started slow. During the first few minutes, they filled the air with small talk. But of course, there's an elephant in the room. And the question is, who's going to address it first? So I didn't know if something changed after the essays, like I became a real person to you that you might want to know. And before that, I was sort of an inconvenience. No, you were never, Katie, you were never an inconvenience. I didn't quite know where it would go if we met. And also, I, I don't know, I didn't, I just, I wanted, I wanted to hold on to my individuality. It's Katie Crouch. It was just about me, really. It was all my... Buried anxieties and neuroses. <laughs> but it's nice to talk to you now. I had no idea what your perspective would be on the whole thing. And I was really motivated to write my response. I don't know if it, if you expected that or knew that it was coming, but I just felt like it was inevitable that I had to respond. Well, I, um, I was definitely surprised that you wrote an essay, but I wasn't, it made set. you know, I wasn't like, your, I mean, I think your essay was a little more barbed than mine was. <laughs> um, so one line in your essay was a little, was particularly prickly to me, and maybe you didn't mean it to be. And that was um, that you picked up my book, Girls and Trucks, and read it. And then your next line was, I didn't want to like it. And then, period. And then instead of saying, but I did like it, you said something like, you know, you said it's something else. <laughs> so it just... No, it means I did like it. I just, I felt jealous about it, you know, and you sort of blew me off. So I was like, I hope this is just terribly written. <laughs> and it, and I guess I meant for that to be a little bit hanging, like implying, yeah, I, I grudgingly really liked it. Well, I'm glad you like it. But you're it right. Yeah, I was, you I was pick... sensitive. I am very sensitive about my writing. And I was, um, even though I pretend not to be. Like, I don't care if she doesn't like it. She doesn't. <laughs> I wasn't super sensitive about that because I was just feeling envious and a little hurt. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, 
thanks. I, I get it. I think the truth is we are really different people. And the proof of that is how we've communicated thus far really differently. Right. Yeah. But your essay drove it home to me that you, you know, yes, this is a real person and, you know, not just an idea. And it's much harder to say no or to ignore a real person than the, an idea of a person. So I think that's that's what changed. Um, and, and, and the fact that the essay was so honest and like, I liked that it was barbed. It makes for good writing. It was honest. The conversation takes a detour here. They give each other a status update. The first Katie moved to Chicago back in August. The second Katie just had another kid and is actually taking off to Africa for a year. And the first Katie opens up about choosing to have her son on her own. I don't know if you knew that I had him on my own. Which I think is completely amazing. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, really, like, I've had wanted to do that for the longest time and then um, something else happened, but I think that's, but that would have been really crazy if we'd both done that. Oh my gosh. We would have met a lot sooner because it's a very tight group in San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually the organizer for Single Moms by Choice in San Francisco until I moved away, so I was pretty active in that group of amazing kick-ass women. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. I knew you were better than I was. (laughs) Oh, stop it. (laughs) And you play the violin. (laughs) I'm not perfect, Katie Crouch. (laughs) You are to me. Oh. (laughs) Okay, so however you guys want to wrap it up. Wrap it up. That's a tough one. What if we never talk again? Well, while you're out of the country for a year, maybe we could both reflect on what happens next. That was Katie versus Katie, produced by Nancy Lopez with original music by Renzo Gorio for Snap Judgment. Personal revelations like those in today's show often take place on long road trips. In our next story, journalist James Spring revisits a lengthy car ride from his past when memories and regrets collided. Because as anyone who's ever been on a road trip knows, it rarely ends up just being about getting to your destination. There's this guy that I've known forever. His name's Kevin. He's about 40, a father now with two kids. But back in the summer of 1989, when Kevin had just turned 16, his dad let him drive from San Diego to Central America with his older brother. Kevin was super excited. It was the adventure of a lifetime. He'd saved up nearly $1,000 working after school at a yogurt shop. Kevin's brother, who was 21 at the time, knew parts of Mexico pretty well. After he'd dropped out of college, it seemed that he was down in Baja all the time. He was a hard charger, lived with a bunch of tattooed guys who looked like felons. He drove this kick-ass red Jeep with no doors. So, a little wild, but he'd always looked out for Kevin since they were little kids. Kevin wasn't worried. Good guy to travel with. He'll watch out for me while learn some Spanish, drink beer and smoke cigarettes. But there were other interesting facts about Kevin's brother, too, some of which would soon become concerns. That thing that the brother was doing in Baja, not legal. The tattooed guys who looked like felons were, in fact, felons. 
And actually, Kevin's brother himself had recently been released from a short stint in county jail. The older brother had anger issues. He was a control freak. So the trip, I mean, it sucked. It ended badly, and it ended early. There was a blowout fight. Two drove down, one flew back. I was happy to get on a plane and go home. I'd had enough of the driving. I'd had enough of my old brother. And now it'd become a fight. And even though we had fought before, really this was the worst one. There's one more important thing to know about Kevin and his brother. When they were kids, they'd been everything to each other, super close, like war buddies, because they grew up with a stepfather who was a real bastard, violent. And they moved around a lot, every year a new school, no friends, really just each other. This trip, that fight, it decimated their relationship. The two never really spoke about the trip again, didn't speak much at all. It's been more than 20 years. I wanted to talk to Kevin about this and how he feels about it now, since I already know how his brother feels about this, because I'm his brother. Okay. We're, we're recording. You good? All right, I'm good. Is that me? I think so. Talk about the long trip. When I first suggested that we talk, Kevin was ambivalent. I think he wondered why, like what good could come of it, which is fair, because I have not been an easy guy to talk to. But I had some things I wanted to say. And and look, in this story, I'm not going to come off well. In the late 80s, I was the first person in my family to get into college. I dropped out after six months. Some friends let me crash with them. One night I threw a party that went off the rails and three shots rang out from a semi-automatic handgun. The idiot that fired the gun? That was me. My gun. Evicted. Then I started hanging with some truly bad people. We were running ephedrine and coke from Baja into San Diego. One night there was a drug raid at our house. Everything got flushed down the toilets before the cops got through the door, but I still got arrested. Through all of this, though, I still somehow had this great girlfriend, just really sweet and wonderful. Then I slept with some other girl. You know what that got me? Gonorrhea is what it got me, and no girlfriend. I ruined so much, but I could run away from almost all of it and take penicillin for the rest. I was 21 years old, a colossal mess, and I just wanted to get in my Jeep and drive to Mexico and beyond, see the temples of the Aztecs, the Mayan ruins. So I prepared to drive all the way to Central America for the summer and I would take with me the one person who I was sure didn't think I was such a bad guy. And I was done being that bad guy anyway, that shallow, selfish me that people hated. I was ready to throw myself into something real on this trip, something important, something smart. Before we left, I removed the back seat from the Jeep and replaced it with a welded lockbox with maybe two suitcases worth of storage space. Then I loaded it with a lot of books. I'd always been a reader, like a studier, and my plan for the summer was to learn the language of the Lacandone Mayans, and I was going to learn to read the Mesoamerican hieroglyphs. I even made flashcards for myself. This trip would be an opportunity for me to figure out, once and for all, why the Mayan civilization disappeared. Yeah, archaeologists had been on the job for more than a century, and still nobody knew why all these cities were abandoned. But I was pretty sure that this summer, I was going to get it nailed down. All answers lay somewhere in those lost cities deep in the jungle. And lucky Kevin, 
he was about to see every one of them. Palenque, Chichen Itza, Teotihuacan, Uxmal, Mitla, Temple del Sol. I could name these things, but I can't remember them. They all just blend together for me as rocks crumbling. And the idea of seeing the ruins wasn't, that was your idea, you know, why you would be going to Mexico. At 16, just turned 16, I knew there was gonna be beer. I knew there was gonna be ladies at the tourist spots and um, hopefully surf good warm water. I have no recollection of surf being on the itinerary. I don't, I mean, I don't know. So off we went with our high hopes, such wildly different high hopes into Mexico. To get us to the important places where I wanted to be, most days I'd need to drive us for stretches of six or eight hours. A lot of times Kevin just wanted to stop, like in a village and see stuff, but there could be no stopping. When we did pull into little towns, people were curious about the two gringos who showed up in their pueblo. They'd ask questions and I'd tell them to mind their own business. I wasn't some freak show oddity. What I was, was a pretentious douchebag who could not be bothered to interact with the common man. Kevin, though, was like energized by being around other people. He loved it when we were in the beach towns full of American tourists. And in the small villages, he'd fumble through the few Spanish words that he knew and he'd start these inane conversations with everybody. It grated on me. I wasn't much better on the road. Driving on mountain highways was frigging unnerving, especially at night. And a lot of the time, the map just did not seem to reflect the reality on the ground. My Spanish wasn't great, but the little phrases that I used to navigate around Baja weren't working for me here. The dialects were different. I, I couldn't understand a lot of the responses, and I didn't handle it well, which I couldn't hide from Kevin. He was sitting right next to me. As we pull away from the people, you so often I feel that I remember that you'd be like, ah, oh, that fucking idiot. Or, God, what the I just asked a simple question. You know, and just kind of this continually watching you, the navigator, ask, I don't know, and, and I'd just be like, God, he just asked that question two turns ago. I knew he didn't understand what the guy said. So much in my head, I would just be like, he's calling that guy a idiot, but I didn't even understand what he said. We drove south through Mazatlan and down to Puerto Vallarta. It was all green and jungly and full of tourists having fun. I knew that I was better than them. I wasn't here for the parasailing and the tequila poppers. I had a mission. This is from my journal entry about the ruins at Ixtlan del Rio. This temple is the highest of the 15 plus structures found here. The floor of the temple structure is four feet off the ground and is reached by six narrow steep steps. There's a perimeter wall that runs the circumference save for four entranceways, not equidistant. The wall reaches to 10 feet above the ground and has in its design symmetrical crosses as portholes all the way around, 41 of them. The material of construction at this site was really bad The journal is 190 pages long, and late into every night I wrote down all of the important Mesoamerican anthropology stuff from the trip, which includes virtually no people, at least no living people. If you were forced to read this entire journal and then tried to deduce the importance of the Kevin character in my life, you might guess that he was maybe boy in taco stand or boy at beach number four. He just didn't figure into my narrative. 
And one other thing about this journal, and I'm not sure how to say this except to just say it, along the way I met some girls, and if things went well with those girls, then they would earn a little note at the top of the journal page for the day, right above the groundbreaking archaeological data, and the note would say, for example, remember Blanca. And I totally do remember Blanca, so there's that. For me, it was all ruins all the time. We drove to the ancient Toltec city of Tula and visited Aztec temples at Tenayuca and Santa Cecilia and the ruins of Teotihuacan. And by visited, I mean that we spent hours and hours at each site while I mapped and logged every important detail, while Kevin must have been doing something. In general, he was a pretty good sport about it. And clearly, it wasn't his thing. How are we doing at this point? How are we getting along at this point? in your recollection? Fine, I think there would be times where we talk and be like, let's just not talk, or something, pretty civilly getting through any frustrations. I wouldn't have gone yet and called you names, I don't think. Not yet. Every night ended the exact same way, with me studying and compulsively writing notes in my journal late into the night with the light on while Kevin tried to sleep. He complained about it constantly, as if turning out the lights was more important than what I was writing. I just kept writing. I felt like the answers that I needed could be parsed later from the details that I wrote. And not like in a new-agey way. I mean like in a real anthropological way. So I kept writing. And I drew a ton, too, these really intricate field sketches of Aztec and Mayan designs. And then I mapped out all these ancient cities. There was no reason for this. All of the cities had already been mapped by actual archaeologists. Also, I had a camera. I took hundreds of pictures. Kevin appears in three of them. At this point, if you were going to write a postcard to your best friend about your brother, what would it have said? Uh, the postcard, I'm sure, would say, having fun traveling through Mexico, but my brother's pretty much an asshole. I'm get, getting kind of, I probably would have said I'm getting kind of sick of him. But I'm sure we can get through this. Another, the next fun place ahead. One day, Kevin met a girl about his age. She was Mexican. All I remember about her is that she spoke some English and she had a small head. Kevin introduced me and I was probably just my normal self. She told Kevin, your brother is really sangrón, which I learned later that night means arrogant. And Kevin reveled in a great many retellings of that. He loved letting me know that everybody thought I was a prick. And for some reason, this particular jab from the small-headed girl really hit me hard, because I normally had to work a little to make people dislike me, but I hadn't done that with her. She could tell that I was an arrogant jerk in my normal resting state. Sangrón became Kevin's new favorite word when we argued, and it drove me crazy. But even when Kevin was happy, he was driving me crazy now. His whole cheerful surfer, stoked-to-be-around-people thing. It's funny, though, because I remember as a little kid I was the same way. In second grade, the teacher wrote a comment in my report card that said I was a bubbly student. That night, when our stepfather got home from the machine shop and read it, I got beat. He said he knew what the teacher meant, that I was a loudmouth. I changed. We spent a few days in Mexico City and worked our way south to Oaxaca on little two-lane roads and muddy trails. Kevin suggested that maybe we should skip some of the more remote ruins and head straight for the beach, and I told him, no way. 
We crossed the isthmus and over to the ruins in Campeche in Yucatan. And just when it seemed that Kevin was ready to mutiny, we were saved by our next stop on the map. Cancun. Drinking and nightlife and beautiful beaches and scuba and snorkeling and beautiful water. Cancun was amazing in those days. Just this Caribbean paradise and lots of ruins. But it was okay. I was certain we could see and do it all. In fact, the days in Cancun might have been the best of the entire trip. We were both excited to get out to the islands. There was that island just offshore called Isla Mujeres, which sounded great to me because I knew Mujeres meant women. So we got on some sort of, uh, just, we didn't bring the car. We just went out there ourselves. No car. A ferry out there, I think. And then um, we got there pretty late, I want to say. Long day, and we found kind of a real quiet bar and started drinking, putting down some drinks. And then it was time to go up to our hotel, which is a fairly meager hotel, nothing fancy, and uh, start turning in for the night. And you're making notations in your journal. And uh, it got to an argument in that hotel that night where I pretty much let my mouth fly and I said uh, all the things I felt which included you think you're so cool you think you're so much better than everyone around here Um, and I went to the pimples on your face I went to the chicks you had chosen I went to how you treat everybody like and you still didn't get up out of that bed or stop writing in your book and It was a volcano erupting out of my mouth time. I would not stop. I would not stop. And I got you grinding your teeth and standing up. And you said, I'm going to hit you if you say another word. I think it was that. And I, of course, just said probably one of the slowest. Use. And that's pretty much when I got a slug right to the lip, I'd say. Good fat lip, fly backwards. Oh! Towel rack fell when I flew back. And I stood up tall, but I didn't hit back. I just let that mouth go some more. That didn't hurt. Do it again. Do it again. you doesn't hurt doesn't hurt every horrid thing that he said in that room I knew he was right I agreed with him so I punished him bad threw him into a nightstand shattered a lamp upended a bed there was blood the door was blocked with the mattress so he escaped out the window ran down to the courtyard outside the hotel next door was a jungle gym and the way I remember it My recollection, you were yelling for me to get away from you. You were running around the jungle gym on the opposite side because you thought I was coming back for you more. And I was trying to say, no, 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 you don't understand. I should not have done that. I'm sorry. Over and over, I apologized to Kevin, swore it would never happen again. But it was too late. Kevin was done. I was 100% down to leave. Because I did have the control at that moment. That was the one thing I could control. I just didn't want to be with 
on that trip anymore. I just didn't want to be with you anymore. It wasn't the environment we were in. It was you. I had told you when we got in a fight, I know you remember this, I said, it's never going to be the same between us. That's it. It's over. Never going to respect you. It's never going to be the same again. You call me up, I won't even, you know, probably at that time I would say I wouldn't talk to you. But um, by the next day, I remember your face and I knew your emotions well. You were sorry and you were sad that things weren't going to be the same. You knew it. You said, I know they won't. The next morning, we got back on the ferry and then drove without a word to the Cancun airport where we bought Kevin a one-way ticket to San Diego. I continued on alone to Belize and Guatemala and then turned back up to Mexico where I stayed for the next four years. My mailing address was Lista de Correos, just general delivery, and I didn't have a phone. It wasn't on purpose. Almost nobody in the town had phones. But also, I didn't want a phone. I cut myself off almost entirely from my family, not just during the years in Mexico, but even after I returned. Kevin had been the very last person left standing in my corner, and in this trip, at least in hindsight, had been like a bridge to fix things back home, to show that I wasn't such a bad guy. Instead, it only proved what I'd always feared. I was a bad guy. What I didn't know through all this time was that Kevin actually did get over this stuff quickly, pretty much as soon as he got back to San Diego. He had said things would never be the same, but never means something different to a 16-year-old kid. And I guess I'm not surprised Kevin's over it. I'm the one who couldn't let it go, any of it. Is that trip in Mexico, for me to hit him, to beat him the way that I did after the childhood we had, I felt ashamed. Kevin and I had never really sat down and talked about this, but I know I let him down, not just in Mexico, long before that, all through our childhood. There were beatings, just this violence, like every other day. When I was nine, I saw my stepfather throw Kevin face first into the sharp corner of a wall. It opened up his forehead, so much blood. Kevin was four years old. Even now, almost 40 years later, sitting in front of him, I can barely stand to tell him what happened when we took him to the emergency room. Right off the bat, stepfather's saying, oh, he tripped and fell, you know, he's bleeding, need to get that fixed. And they asked mom, and she gave the company line, and then they asked me, and I said, yeah, he tripped and fell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as the older brother, he, I had a responsibility. I mean, regardless of what was beaten out of me, I had this responsibility, you know. I mean, it, it, it hits me now when I look at your face. You've got that, I mean, that scar is, that scar is a part of you that is a part that I wish I could forget. And I bet. And, and we would go visit Dad every other weekend, and he would ask, and I wouldn't say anything, you know. I just, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it and then our dad didn't know what our stepfather was doing to us until one weekend when Kevin was nine Kevin had been beaten badly and he must have said something to dad I don't know I don't even I wasn't there I don't even know what you said well you were there you were there we were going to dad and Kathy's on Cove Drive 
didn't. Kathy wasn't there. He took a little bit different way. We were on a more scenic route from Lakeside, like the six. I remember the sunset in the mountain road, and uh, I remember I had just told him, "Oh yeah, I got beat for leaving the paint out," and then. After getting beat and told to come back out in the living room, I spent about 40 seconds feeling sorry and trying to, to act normal that that 40 seconds passed and I didn't pick up the paint again. And so I got beat again for not picking up the paint. And it just was... Uh, was this electri- the electrical cord? Um, that time it was. Back of the knees to the middle of the back. The only thing that it took to get us out of that bad situation was for somebody to speak up. For me to tell my dad, my real dad, the truth about our life at home. But I was too afraid to say anything. And this fact, more than most any other, makes me hate myself. Because I was the big brother. It was my responsibility to speak up, to protect Kevin. Instead, he's the one who stood up. He's the one who told our dad. And he called CPS, he called the police. They took Polaroids in the room of my bare ass and back and and we sat around a table and said, the policeman asked us, I want you to name every time you've been beat. And that was the table there on Cove Drive, the dinner table. And we looked at each other like, oh, do you have a while? And for years after that conversation, for years, maybe decades, I thought of what I had forgot to tell that guy. Oh, I never mentioned that time. And I know right away that I hadn't mentioned that. Just, it would pop into my head and go, oh, I didn't mention that. Telling Kevin that I was sorry about the fight in Mexico, that was one thing. Talking about the stuff that happened when we were little, what I didn't do. Apologizing for not protecting him as a kid. That's what I really needed to say to him. past 20 years, I've lived like half an hour from Kevin. He invites me to stuff all the time, but I don't go. And I'm not much of an inviter. I don't see him much, or the rest of the family either. Our past has always held me back. It's kind of sad to hear that you have so much remorse over it. I don't blame you for it, and I don't blame you for being older and should have known better. That is something that happened a long time ago. And I don't want you to uh, be tortured by your past. And I hope I haven't done anything to continue the torture. You know, you're loved. I'm a different person now than I was at 21. Mostly. It took a long time to get my karma straight. But I'm still not a guy who's going to start a conversation with you on an elevator. And I'd rather you didn't either. Also... I waited a long time, but I'm married now. I have a daughter who's nine and a son who's seven. They have a very different life than the one Kevin and I had. I'm gonna have this <laughs> a couple of weeks after we spoke, Kevin asked us to come to Thanksgiving at his house. I drove up with my wife and my kids in a vegetable dish. There were a lot of people, like 22, extended family. People who see each other regularly, but don't see me much at all. Kevin likes having all this family around. It makes me a little anxious. My kids played with his kids. Nobody got punched in the face. It was nice. I think I hope to see them at Christmas. Oh, 
That was Not All Who Wander Are Lost, but some definitely are. Produced by James Spring for This American Life. Not all transformations make you a better you. The easier it is to make the change, the easier it is to, well, mess it up royally. A bad tattoo? That's permanent. A bad haircut? It'll grow back, but it's never soon enough. Listen, I had a lot of hair troubles, like... There was, like, this long strip of hair in the middle of my head. Um, And it was sort of, like, hot pink with, like, some orange splotches. This texture of, like, something bad had happened to it. I hated it. If you looked at me from behind, you'd think I was a girl. Like, it was just, like, this big, like, puffball. I did like having long hair, but... I don't know, it was just harder to eat ice cream and to sleep. I had like, gone to an, like, an art exhibit the night before, and I noticed all of these beautiful women with really short hair. And I was like, ah, oh, they look so great with short hair. I started to feel like it was heavy and it was somehow weighing me down. I felt like, I need a new look. And then I kind of just went, yep, you know what, screw it, I'm cutting my hair. Uh, so my aunt was a hairdresser. And I called her, and I was like, hey, Carmen, you wanna, will you shave my head? And um, I could tell she was really hesitant about it. She was like, what is your boyfriend gonna think? I woke up and was like, I'm ready to do this. We listened to music, we drank kava. First, she put my hair in a big ponytail and like cut off like three quarters of it. And oh my God, it looked like this weird animal. And I could tell it was getting short. I was like, Auntie, it's getting really short. She's like, oh, you have so many split ends, uh, split ends. We have to get rid of the split ends. And then suddenly, like the battery, I guess, got a new burst of life and it kicked in and I had turned it up to the highest setting. And so instead of some nice stubble, I just shaved myself completely bald. If soccer mom hair and Midwestern news anchor hair had a baby. Like, that's what they gave 17-year-old me. And then what happened? Well, nobody really noticed at first. I just looked really, really different. And I met up with my boyfriend afterwards, and he was just like, he just kept looking at me like, oh my goodness, wow. And he was so, so into it. And almost immediately from, like, when we saw each other, it was this... It was like a whole, it was a whole different relationship. And I cried and I cried and I cried and like my friends tried to fix it and there was literally nothing to be done. I just had to like put a hat on. Everyone in my class went, oh, first they're just like, oh sorry, I think you have the wrong classroom. And they're just like, oh my god, it's Kai, whoa. It's almost like I looked like a badass bitch and so I kind of felt like I was one and then I started acting like one. Just sucked. (laughs) Straight up character building, I don't know, (laughs) like... (laughs) That was Why Did You Cut Your Hair by Allison Broverman and Veronica Simmons. It was originally produced for the 2015 Third Coast Short Docs competition. To hear more entries from that year's Studs Terkel-inspired challenge and hundreds of other short docs, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org.
You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough.